Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, the future of the CFL is looking pretty dim right now as the 2020 season is likely to be wiped out. What are the next steps and what's the future like? Cottagers in Haldeman, Norfolk are appealing the order that bans them from going to their properties. Ken Hewitt, the mayor of Haldeman, joins us to talk about that. And there's been a lot happening with our neighbors to the south. Elliot Tepper, Emeritus Professor of Political Science at Carleton University, joins us to talk about that. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. The future of the Canadian Football League right now is is pretty dim. Uh, it looks as if the 2020 season is going to be wiped out. Uh, CFL, CFL Commissioner Randy Ambrosi uh, spoke to a Commons Committee virtual meeting yesterday uh, and laid out the future for the CFL for this year and for the, the time to come. Uh, as you know, there, there is an ask right now for the, uh, the federal government to uh, come to the financial assistance of the Canadian Football League. Uh, suffice to say, it was met with kind of a cool reception from some of the members of the committee yesterday. Uh, will they get the money, and will there be a CFL? Uh, yeah, it is that drastic, apparently. Bob Bertina is the uh, MVP for Hamilton East Stony Creek. He's going to join us in just a couple of seconds. But to set the scene, uh, this is one of the things that Commissioner Ambrosi said yesterday. Bringing people together makes us great, but in a pandemic, it makes us vulnerable. Because the first thing to go and the last thing to come back is large gatherings, and large gatherings is the lifeblood of the CFL. Uh, no truer words were spoken. Uh, Bob Bertina, Hamilton East Stony Creek MP, joins us. Bob, good morning. Thanks so much for the time today. Good morning, Bill. On the technical side, I didn't hear the specific clip that you used. Uh, I don't know if there's a switch you can throw to feed any other clips, but uh, what, what was the content of that? It basically, it was the clip where Randy was talking about uh, the fact that, look, at they're, they're crowd-driven. You know, we're the first ones that have to shut down. We're the last ones to come back, which is exactly the way this is going to roll out. Uh, and if I guess the, the, the obvious question here, Bob, and I read your op-ed piece in the spec a, a few days ago that I think was bang on here. Uh, if there's any league that, that needs crowd and needs fans, it's the Canadian Football League. I mean, yeah. most of those other leagues, the NFL, the Major League Baseball, the NBA, have lucrative television contracts, and, and can, they can survive. I mean, they're going to take a hit, but they're going to survive. Uh, the CFL doesn't have that luxury, and uh, if there's nobody in the stands, this league is in trouble. There's no question about it. And uh, the fact is that Canadian Football League is so different that I don't think you can devise a federal funding program for pro sports that would would satisfy the, the needs of the Canadian Football League. And uh, it's all different, but, you know, we our team in Hamilton, for instance, originated in 1869, and it's gone through all sorts of ups and downs when the Tigers and the Wildcats amalgamated in the end of the 1949 season. Uh, the bankruptcy in uh, August of 2003. Remember when the teams went on the field? It was when that brownout happened, and mm-hmm. and uh, they didn't know where they were going to get paid when they came on the field. It was the saddest football broadcast I'd ever done in in 20 seasons. So there's something unique about it, and um, it's it can't be. <laughs> you're going to hate me for this. A political football. It has to have a groundswell of the cities that are CFL cities and their fans, of course, the uh, provinces, because the, in Manitoba and Saskatchewan, as an example, those two provinces uh, have spent millions and millions of dollars on those new stadiums. They're a complete fiasco. And I'm sorry to see my friend Kevin Waugh, who's a conservative MP from Regina, a good guy. We get along great. He was a former hockey 
play-by-play guy. Yeah. But he's talking about not one dime, and he's talked to everybody, no way, no way. That stadium, they owe millions of dollars, and the only way it's going to get paid back is by having events. So uh, so uh, Groundswell from cities, mayors uh, maybe designates MPPs, provincial representatives, and MPs. And uh, along with league governors, I think they've got to sit together and come up with a plan as opposed to Ottawa writing a big check because it's just not going to fly, I don't think. But if, from a political point of view, we're seen as doing nothing, it's hard enough for uh, the government in the West as it is, but they will be blamed for uh, the demise of the Canadian Football League, even though we're hearing comments from, uh, well, Regina, for one, about about, about no funding. So I, I think that a, a large government check is probably not on, but a consortium, uh, a share pay kind of a thing, you know, how much are you in for, uh, would would probably be the answer. But somebody's got to sit down and figure that one out. Well, and therein lies the problem. And you and I, you mentioned about that day. I remember the, the bad old days of the early 1990s when the league was really uh, in quicksand. And, uh, I mean, let's face it, remember they were doing telethons in places like Regina and other places yeah. to try to get enough money to, to open the doors and, and to pay the players. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, well, we had a couple of intuitive people in the, in the league at that time, including, well, Scott Mitchell's dad, Doug Mitchell, who was the commissioner yeah. for a period of time, who kind of set the business case and got us back on our feet. Yeah. Uh, I can remember, as you know, we had the last the '96 Grey Cup, which was right here in Hamilton. I was the PA announcer, and I remember yeah. talking with uh, you know the, some of the folks after the game from the CFL, and uh, they said, "I don't know how we're going to pay these guys." And I said, "What guys?" He says, "Everybody." He said, "I don't know where we're going to get the money from." That, that's how bad it was. And the league—I'm not going to say it was it flourishing, but they weren't doing too badly. A few of the teams are are in the black right now. But yeah. this is a not of their own doing. This is not mismanagement. And I know you might have made that argument back in the '90s. But this is this is the virus. And uh, you know, are we going to let this whole league, with all the people that are employed in this league, uh, just say goodbye? So long. Too bad. Yeah, and the, the all the people employed too include a lot of. Uh, minimum wage, part-time people—those people, you know. When we go to uh, Tim Horton Field, Bill, there's all sorts of uh, small jobs that are being done uh, for not much money. But then there's the spin-offs, you know, the Polish Hall on Barton Street, uh, selling sausages and stuff before the game, packed. Uh, the restaurants before and after. So there is an economic story to, to tell, but it's it's a small. Uh, a kind of a story as opposed to an NHL or an NFL or Major League Baseball. So it's unique. It won't fit into a one-size-fits-all bailout program, if you want to put it that way. But somehow all of the interested parties have got to sit together in a room and come up with, with a plan. Who, which parties would you like? I mean, what, what role would the government play? And I, I know you can't speak for the government. I, 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 the prime minister has mentioned, because he's been asked about this a number of times in the last 10 days or so, that there are ongoing discussions. So I guess he's involved in some way, shape, or form. Uh, but it's, these guys got to get an answer pretty soon. There's got to be some sort of a plan here, Bob. Well, for one thing, with the technology now, because we've had uh, very good results with our virtual committee meetings. I've I've chaired my committee We've had the whole uh, 150 or so Liberal Caucus on uh, on my laptop in my dining room, <laughs> so so you can very quickly pull together 
a meeting. But to your point, the prime minister has to uh, appoint uh, a coordinating committee to very quickly, you know, within the next week or so, which I, I don't see why we can't do it if we're doing these uh, programs um, in six days that normally take two years to plan, you know, the the CERB program and all, yeah. all of those things. They're being done very quickly. And so something's got to be done quickly. And, and uh, I, I would say that a, a committee has to be appointed uh, given the responsibility to invite mayors or their designates, MPPs, the members of the provincial parliament who represent, uh, the, the the football areas and MPs. I I'd pick James Maloney as an example in Toronto, who's a big uh, Argo fan who could sit on that committee. Uh, Dave Lametti, who is the uh, Attorney General, played football at McGill. And when I when I gave a eulogy for Bernie Custis in the House, he knew all about Bernie from his days at McMaster and so on. So so there there are interested people, but I think that. Um, you can't just wonder whether or not there's a big enough check to solve this. I think that a committee has to be struck of all the interested parties to come up with a recommendation. And once again, we're running out of time, but um, sitting on all of our laps is the technology that's now been pretty much uh, technically cleaned up and, and available to go. Well, we're going to watch for next steps on this, Bob. Thanks, as always, for this. Uh, lots more to come on this. We'll get you back in here in the next couple of days with the uh, developments, whichever they might be. Uh, have a great weekend, and uh, we'll talk again soon. Appreciate it, Bill. Thanks so much. Okay. Hamilton East Stony Creek uh, Member of Parliament, uh, Bob Bertine, of course, former play-by-play uh, guy for the Tiger Cats for many, many years. So what's going to happen next? What's going to happen with the Canadian Football League? Uh, was uh, was this Mr. Ambrosi, the CFL commissioner, was, was he – resonating with people or as bob said i mean a lot of people on the committee yesterday that listened to what mr ambrosi said uh just figured look at you guys have got money you just shouldn't be coming to us i don't know if it's that simple i'll get sean fitzgerald in on the conversation sean of course is the managing editor and feature writer with the athletic uh, sean morning how are you doing today i'm doing well thank you for having me good are we uh, are we overseeing the demise of the canadian football league with uh, what's happened with covid19 how many times you figured that questions? I mean, without the COVID nineteen part, how many times you figured the question? Oh, I know. Are we seeing the demise of the Canadian Football League? How many times do you think that's probably been asked? Maybe it's, even on this very station over the years. Oh gosh, yeah. We were just talking about some of them. I mean, the the early nineteen nineties. Quite frankly, there's a lot of people that are surprised the league even survived that. Yeah, I mean, wasn't it after the ninety six Grey Cup in Hamilton where people were wondering whether the league would make payroll or even survive to see the following season? I mean, absolutely. It, it's. It's a, a really resilient league. I mean, remember the Birmingham Barracudas and the, the Memphis oh. Mad Dogs and the Las Vegas Posse, like that whole thing? Um, yeah, this is a different CFL, too, that, you know, we're not talking about owners who, you know, need to go and sell a car or a house to, to make payroll. Like, if you take a look around the league, you have, you know, the three community-owned teams. You have Edmonton, Winnipeg, and Saskatchewan. And and you take a look at some of the more recent financials, you know, I think it was I read that Winnipeg cleared, you know, two point eight million dollars in operating profit and Saskatchewan was potentially even higher and Edmonton was in good shape. And um, you know, last night uh, one of the, the Western Canadian beat reporters figured out that, you know, those three teams account for potentially up to forty seven percent of of all league revenues. And you're like, okay, well well that's good. But what about the private owners? And you know, historically, in recent history, within the last 20 years, that's where you sort of get into trouble, right? Like in 
2003, you had Toronto go bankrupt, and then you had the Ticats go bankrupt very shortly thereafter. Well, mm-hmm. well, where are we now? Let's take a look. And you take a look in Toronto. Who owns the Argos? Well, Maple Leaf Sports and Entertainment. And what's the what's the estimated valuation on that? Well, it's a, it's a private company, but you know Richard Petty, the former chief executive, told me not long ago that you know he figured it could be worth between four and five billion dollars. And you take a look at the Stampeders. You know who owns the Stampeders? Well, it's it's the same group that owns the Calgary Flames. And you take a look at who's on that company. And you know there's there's at least one guy who is you know before the pandemic worth more than a billion dollars. You take a look at the Red Blacks and, and who owns them. And you know some of the folks there are worth quite a bit of money. One one of the owners, you know, their family, according to Canadian Business Magazine, a couple of years ago was worth something along the, the lines of $1.5 billion. And, you know, in Hamilton, you know, Bob Young, you know, the last estimate was several hundred million dollars. So, you know, nobody's saying that, you know, these folks have to, you know, step up and, and write, you know, seven or eight figure checks to keep the league alive. But, you know, for a bit of perspective here, like, you know, when people are asking for transparency, and that's, that's a lot of what happened yesterday on that uh, finance committee call. You know, they're asking for transparency. They want to know where the money is going, how this would be spent. And without the answers, you have a lot of people left to infer, well, this is just billionaires potentially looking for another, you know, kick at some public money. Yeah, and there is another side to that, which is why I think you're right. The, the financials have to be part of any conversation that's going to happen going forward here, Sean. Because, I mean, for instance, you mentioned the Winnipeg situation. Yeah, they're in the black this year uh, for the first time in a while. But they've got to pay off that stadium. You may remember when they finally got that stadium built, and that was a, a job in and of itself. Uh, they borrowed all the money for it, and they've got to pay that back. So if there's no revenue coming in, you know, there you go. Bob, I don't even know how many, how many millions of dollars uh, Bob Young has, has sunk into the football team. Uh, and in the writing, I think they finally got into the black last year for the first time ever. That just means he didn't lose as much money, though. So there is that side of it. And David Braley, uh, you know, they, well, David's in the Hall of Fame. I mean, they'll write the story of David Braley. He probably was the guy that saved the league back in the early 1990s when you were referring to that. You know, he bought the Argos. He bought the BC Lions. He was the CFL commissioner for a while just to try to get these guys back on their feet. Uh, I don't know that there's a savior like that in the, in the in the floor. You know, Ambrosi seems like a great guy, but boy, somebody with some business smarts has got to come up with a plan here. And I I, I agree with you. I'm, I, I in a perfect world, yeah, okay, we'll sign you a check. I don't think the government's going to do that, but there's got to be some innovative thinking here. Like, okay, full disclosure, I really like the CFL, right? Like, like so I do I. In Burlington, I you know Iverwind Stadium. Um, I, I recently wrote a, a story. Um, you know, the Athletic asked, you know, writers from across the company, across North America to write about their favorite athletes. And you had people writing, you know, about NFL stars and baseball stars. I picked Pinball Clemens and wrote about how he was my favorite athlete. I was 12 years old when he arrived in, in Canada, and he was just amazing and continues to be amazing. Like, I have a real deep affinity for the CFL, um, life lifelong, really. But... Um, like the unemployment in Canada right now, I think they're about to announce it's something like 13%. Um, Two million last month, yeah. Of the economy have cratered. Um, nobody, you know, not nobody, but very few people have living memory of anything like what we're going through right now. You're, you have to go back to the Spanish flu of a century ago and, you know, potentially, you know, people who lived through the Great Depression. Like, these are uncharted waters for most of us. And, yeah, you know, in a pre-pandemic world, the CFL says it's in trouble. Canadian taxpayers have been pretty generous in the past. I mean, the federal government cut a $5 million check 
for Toronto to host a party for the 100th Grey Cup not all that mm-hmm. long ago. Like, it, it's it's proven that, you know, we have publicly supported the CFL, but these are different times. And without a detailed breakdown, and, and that wasn't, to be clear, that was not provided yesterday, without saying, here's where the money is going to go, here's who we're going to help, and without, frankly, having any, you know, real connection to the CFL Players Association through this, it only raises more questions. It doesn't provide a lot of answers. Which is, I, I look at yesterday as a first step, uh, not as, a, uh, hopefully not the last one. Yeah, I think, the, as they say, more to come on this one. Uh, Sean, as always, thanks so much for your input. Great talking with you again. Uh, we'll see how this rolls out. Thanks for having me. Talk again soon. You betcha. Sean Fitzgerald, of course, managing editor and uh, feature writer with The Athletic. Always a great place to, to get the latest on what's going on in the sports world. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. You're going up the country to your cottage. Uh, well, that's a baddie. That's a no-no. Uh, we've had a lot of conversation about this over the last four or five days. Uh, and this all stems from uh, the fact that, well, during COVID-19, we're supposed to stay at home. We get that. Uh, and then we have been suggested to us, maybe is the best way to say this, that, uh, that okay, you stay at home. If you have a cottage, don't go up there. Uh, Doug Ford talked about that. Of course, the Premier talked about that. Uh, well, what really seemed to, to light a fire under this whole discussion in this debate was an order from the Haldem Norfolk, Chief of Medical Officer of Health, uh, that basically said anybody who shows up at their cottage uh, this weekend uh, on that particular area is threatening with a $5,000 fine for violators. Uh, they all got letters about that. I've talked to some of the residents who actually received those, and they're irate about this. Uh, as a matter of fact, the Long Point Ratepayers Association has appealed that order, arguing that it singles out Hollow and Norfolk cottages. But similar orders uh, with similar threats of penalties or shutting off water have happened in other cottage areas, too. So we're going to give you an opportunity to weigh in on this. I'm going to open the lines in a couple of seconds. Actually, we'll open them now. You can jump into the queue. Uh, 905-645-3221, start 9900 are the, uh, the numbers. Of course, email bkelly at 900chml.com. Uh, if you're a cottage owner, will you comply or defy the no cottage order uh, this weekend and I guess upcoming weekends? Uh, some have already. I want to bring uh, Ken Hewitt, the uh, mayor of Haldeman, into the uh, discussion here for just a couple of seconds. Ken, thanks for jumping in. I know it's a busy day for you. How are you doing yeah. today? Good, good, Bill. Thanks for having me. Uh, what kind of reaction are you getting from your residents about all this? It's, uh, as you called it, it's irate, uh, frustrated, and, and certainly angry. It's interesting because it's a polarizing issue, Bill. I mean, there's, uh, for, for as many people that are frustrated, uh, there's also a lot of people who live here that, uh, that want that order and that has supported that order. So it's, you know, it's a challenging position to be in because, uh, you know, I think there's arguments for and against. I got this somebody I got a long email the other day from somebody who lives up there as a matter of fact in Port Dover and uh they they, they thought this was kind of a silly idea but anyway she suggested that, that the motivation for this may well have been the fact that there were a bunch of people that showed up at Port Dover a week or so ago and crowded the downtown area as people tend to do this time of year and and every weekend in the summertime uh and and that was probably it well we don't want those people there and there's an argument to be made for that but but they're not cottagers uh, so the other, she was wondering why are you are all of a sudden targeting cottagers as if they're going to be carrying the virus. The people that were that were not social distancing that were hanging around on the main drag in Port Dover there, that's a problem. If somebody goes to their cottage and stays in their cottage and just enjoys the weekend, is is that really a problem? Is that spreading the virus? Well, it's you know I, you, you're asking a politician the, the medical. <laughs> <question>. <laughs> the uh, I don't disagree. Uh, the, 
the issue with uh, the day trippers are, are, are really more of a concern. And uh, that being said, I, I don't believe that's what drove our medical officer to to issue this order. I, I think he, you know, from his perspective, he feels any any way of just simply minimizing the risk, and that's what this is. This, no order uh, is there to guarantee it. It's just simply to minimize the risk, and and he believes just you know being able to minimize it's going to help. You know, you can shoot holes through this all day long uh, when you try and argue the sense of anything within this pandemic, and, and, and that's the challenge is, you know, does it make sense? It doesn't, uh, you know, but many other orders don't as well, and, and we have people who live in Haldeman that work in Hamilton or this GTA and, and come back and forth every day. Um, so it's 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 a tough one to, to look at from that perspective, but I can tell you that, uh, you know, we have migrant workers here coming, uh, we have Obviously, the cottagers, uh, you know, the day trippers, you know, going from zero to 60, you know, as Doug Ford wants to do with the businesses and, and opening up the economy, it certainly makes sense. But for us out here, it's not zero to 60, it's zero to 100. And that's what they're trying to minimize. But the concern here, and you've raised a couple of, I think, very cogent issues here, Ken. Uh, you have migrant workers in there. They're not banned. I mean, they still have to be there because they have a job to do. Uh, and I know there's a process that's been put in place for that. Uh, the day trippers are somewhat of a problem. Uh, but even Mr. Four, the premier that suggested that we should do this, uh, we found out uh, from Global News yesterday that on Easter weekend, he took a trip up north and spent the weekend at his cottage. Um, so it's kind of do as I say, not as I do situation. Yeah, no, and, and uh, you know, I'm sitting here in my cottage. Uh, I'm in Haldeman, and, and I, my primary residence is in Haldeman. And, uh, sorry, I'm in Norfolk, and, and so I'm under the One Health Unit. I know people have, uh, have certainly been critical of that. Uh, I, you know, from my perspective, I, I don't uh, I don't see the enforceability of this order, and, and for that reason, I've cha- I've been challenged by it uh, in terms of supporting it. I think that uh, bylaws, laws, anything we do, we should be able to you know to get behind it and support it. And this one's a challenge because it's not enforceable, and uh, and I think for that reason, uh, it would have made much more sense for for all of us to follow the same direction as the rest of the province and ask people to just simply, you know, be cautious and, and consider, you know, if you don't need to leave the home, don't leave the home, as as we've been hearing for six, seven weeks. Mm-hmm. Uh, just on a matter of, uh, of protocol here, because uh, I've heard from people after we had this discussion earlier in the week, and some said, look, I've got a place up there. I'm going up there this weekend. That's all there is to it. I'm going to stay in my place. I'm not going shopping. I'm not going to certainly can't go to restaurants or bars or anything, but said, so who's going to who's going to try to enforce this? I mean, are OPP going to go knocking on doors and looking to see if there's cars in the driveway? Who, who does the bylaw enforcement up there? Well, that's just it. It uh, it's not enforceable by the OPP because it's a Section 22 order, and uh, and so it becomes a uh, an issue between the health unit and bylaw. And uh, frankly, you know, I, I I'm I'm perplexed in the sense of you know how do you put uh, you know a bylaw you know individual in that situation to try to determine, you know, where do you live? Who are you? How long have you been here? Uh, you know, and oh, you don't live here. You don't, you know, you don't belong here. And it's time for you to leave. All of those, you know, are challenges that I just don't see how you can, you know, truly, you know, support and manage this order, which is why we've been, you know, working with the medical officer to try to find another way to, to deter people from, you know, from, from traveling back and forth, because that's, as you said earlier, that's the real issue is, is those day trippers, those people that are coming in and, and thumbing their nose up to, you know, to all the, uh, you know, 
rules and, 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 and orders that we've been trying to, to follow and support the communities and, and, and ultimately get the businesses open so we can enjoy the rest of the summer. Mm-hmm. I, and again, like I say, a lot of the folks I've heard from would describe their own routine very similar to, to what you've talked about. Uh, you know, if you leave your residence, get in your car and drive to your residence up there, whether it's a cottage or whatever the case may be, and simply stay there. In other words, you bring your supplies. You know, you want a bottle of wine, you bring it from here. Uh, you know, you're not spreading the virus. You're still self-isolating. You're just doing it in a different location. Then you get in your car and go home at the end of the weekend. And they're saying, well, I don't understand why that's that's so wrong. I think, Bill, that, you know, and I, again, I'm, I'm a politician, not the medical doctor, but I think part of it is there's that asymptomatic individual who could mm-hmm. be carrying the virus and not knowing they're carrying the virus. And, you know, we have such a limited... Uh, a resource and people said you know well if i come and i do happen to have the virus i'm going to go back to the city where i belong that's fair but if you happen to infect someone locally along the way or that cluster starts to to grow here we have you know six icu beds across the two counties we have eight ventilators um you know we're we're very limited in terms of resources and so so one outbreak out here would really throw us for a loop well, it's going to be interesting to see just what happens. Uh, like I said, the day we were doing this, I think it was Tuesday or Wednesday, I got a couple of people that said we're driving up there now, one at Turkey Point, one at Long Point, uh, that said, look, we're going up there, and, you know, we're not going to abuse it. We're going to, you know, respect everybody up there. But who knows? I mean, you're absolutely right. There's some people that just thumb their nose at these these practices anyway. So uh, I guess the proof is going to be in the pudding, and we'll see just what happens on, on well, this afternoon and Saturday and Sunday up there and just uh, what kind of an influx if one you're going to get. Uh, the Premier was right, I think, earlier in the week. He said you probably can't stop people from doing this. If they're bound to vent, they're going to do it. They're going to go up there. I mean, how can you physically say you can't do this and turn them turn them back? So, well, here's uh, the challenge, though, Bill. It's, it's that, you know, if, if people follow all the rules and the statistics show that there's no more cases, then people will say, oh, you overreacted. And the problem with that is you can't measure the success of all the decisions that have been made because – the success would be nothing happening. Mm-hmm. So, so the challenge is how do you how do you know that this was a good deal or that or a good idea or bad idea? And that's you know there lies a lot of the problems. I, I you know I really hope at the end of the day we end up getting ourselves in a position where we can open, we can invite the people that uh, that come out here to Haldeman Norfolk. They enjoy the places, they celebrate, they have fun, uh, spend their money in the businesses and the local economy. That's really where we want to be. There's no intent uh, whatsoever to alienate people and, and not have them, uh, you know, enjoy their cottages. We certainly don't want to see that happen. Hollow Bear, uh, Ken Hugh, Ken, always a pleasure. I know, like I say, I had to jump on here. Uh, we'll check in again later on, just see how this thing rolls out over the next little while. And, and by the way, I, I know we're singling you out because you're close by here, but, I mean, this is happening in, in cottage areas all over the, the province right now. There's an awful lot of concern about this. And I guess on a national basis, for, I mean, for Dr. Tam to actually talk about this uh, yesterday at their briefing, and there's, let's face it, there's, I guess, a lot of concern in a lot of different areas right now about what might happen. Well, and that's what we've seen, you know, across the, you know, the country, but also in other parts of the world, where, you know, the the, the rural and northern parts of uh, of different communities have suffered as a result of those leaving the city. And, you know, for you know, I do the same thing as I think everybody who's stuck in the city has a nice cottage up in the Muskokas. Why wouldn't you want to be up there? And uh, and you can't blame them. You really can't. I think it's just ultimately just everybody wants to be safe and protect the. Uh, protect their communities, protect the people that live there, and obviously the people that want to visit. Ken, thanks so much for the time. We'll talk again soon. Thanks, Bill. Enjoy the rest of the weekend. You too. Uh, Hall of America, Ken Hewitt. Uh, 
want to give you a chance to weigh in this. I got a few minutes here. 905-645-3221 and star 9900. Uh, will you comply or defy? Are you a cottage owner? And it could be down on Lake Erie. It could be Muskoka. It could be any number of different areas uh, that just say, look at what's the big deal if I go up there and spend some time on the weekend? Uh, I, and I get the thing about spread. We we understand that. But, I mean, we are opening up already, aren't we? I mean, so, you know, is this something that's going to happen next weekend or the weekend after? We don't know uh, when the government's going to actually lift the, uh, the, the the restrictions that they've put on here. But as I mentioned with, uh, with Mayor Hewitt, I mean, the premier himself, well, he didn't admit it. Somebody found out. Uh, there were leaks all over the place at Queen's Park, as we've talked about, uh, that he spent Easter weekend up at his cottage. And this is after saying that, no, nobody should leave. It's, well, he did. So, and, and he's not the only one. I'm not just going to single him out. I mean, the other, you know, there were other people that are doing the exact same thing under that very same premise. You know, we're not going around. We're not spreading. We're just spent, we're going from one domicile to another domicile. Is that really so bad? Especially if you take all the precautions, you know, they're wearing masks. They're, you know, they're doing all the things they're supposed to do. But, you know, the, the medical officers of health are, are obviously saying, no, we're not ready for that yet. Would there be a huge influx? I don't know what's going to happen up in Port Dover or Lake po- or Long Point or any of these other areas. I know what it's like in a typical summer. Uh, mind you, if you look at the weather forecast for this weekend, this is not a typical spring or summer forecast. I mean, they're talking about snow in the forecast and some bitter temperatures. There's still a frost warning in effect for the southern Ontario area here. 905-645-3221, start 9900. Would you, if you were a cottager, if you are a cottager, are you going to comply with that? Are you going to stay home for the next few weekends because uh, they don't think it's a good idea? Or are you going to go up there anyway to wherever it is? 905-645-3221, start 9900. Email bkelly at 900chml.com. There's been so much discussion about this. And and the, the premier himself wavered on this. I mean, he, Easter weekend, the very weekend that he went up there to his place, he was telling everybody not to. Uh, then earlier in this week, uh, he was asked about it again at one of his daily conferences and said, look it, I can't stop people and I can understand why they're doing it uh, and seemed to, to have some concern about the, the orders that were being issued. Uh, but he had a uh, conference call uh, later this week uh, with a number of the mayors from the, some of the cottage areas and uh, came away and simply said, okay, you can't do that now. So I understand the concerns that they're coming from. But I, again, I'm wondering if the motivation for this is the concern about people that make day trips and are going to flood the downtown area. Because I, 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 I've, I've heard some of the residents in, in some of the areas in Haldeman that are expressing concern, and, and they agree with the medical officer of health and what they're suggesting. But they're concerned that there's going to be run on grocery stores, there's, you know, all the, all the things that they use on a daily basis. Uh, the, the cottages are going to come up there and do that. Um, I'm not so sure that's going to happen. I mean, if you're coming from Hamilton or the GTA and you're going to a cottage area, invariably you probably bring your supplies with you, at least on a weekend like this anyway, until everything gets sorted out. Um, and somebody said, well, yeah, you have to go to the hardware store. Well, the hardware store is not open yet. I mean, they will be starting this weekend. But that's 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 the way of life. I'm not so sure that people are simply going to defy this. And if I, it's the day trips that bother you. You look at a town like Port Dover, and uh, people that were, like I say, and you know, just a, a lot of them congregating. And I saw those pictures as well. And they're not self-isolating. And there's a lot of concern about what might happen, and you know, about the spread. And, and that's all legitimate, very legitimate stuff. But uh, you have to ask yourself, how many people are simply going to say, "Look, at, I'm playing by the rules here." And I'm, I'm, you know, I'm wearing gloves, I'm wearing face masks, and I, I'm, I'm self-isolating, and I'm washing my hands 50 times a day. 
Uh, but I want to go up and see what my place looks like. Uh, you know, the premier himself said he had to go up there because he had some plumbing that work had to be done, and he had to oversee that. So, well, probably a legitimate excuse, but a lot other people are in that same situation. But some jurisdictions are now saying, look, if we find you up there, we're going to shut your water off. Uh, or in the case of Haldeman, the potential $5,000 fine. But I just don't see, as, as Mayor Hewitt said, I don't see how you can enforce something like that. Now, the other side of this, too, is it's, it's, it's going to get legal uh, because the, the Ratepayers Association up there, the Long Point, Long Point Ratepayers Association, has appealed the order from the Medical Officer of Health. Uh, they say it singles out Hall of Norfolk Cottages. Some of the people that, uh, that we've talked to over the last couple of days are suggesting that, uh, that uh, they're going to sue the, the, the region, wherever it is, Muskoka or, uh, in the case of Hall of Norfolk, uh, to get their taxes back. They say, you know, we own that property. We're paying property taxes there, and, you know, we have a right to be there. That's all there is to it. And uh, I, I can't comment on the validity of that legal argument, but it's an argument that they're probably going to make. Some are suggesting they should get tax rebates. I mean, there's going to be a huge discussion about this. And uh, it's I, I, very, very difficult to predict exactly where this is going to fall and just how this is going to land. But uh, it's, it's a very, very complicated issue. And I understand where the, the, the health folks are coming from. But then on the other hand, uh, a number of issues are opening up. A number of places are happening. Uh, you know, and the, the premier's already announced the, the, the relaxing of some of the restrictions that have been put in place over the last little while. Uh, and they're suggesting, well, so what's the big deal then if I go up there? I Listen, if I were a resident in those areas and, and all of a sudden there were a whole influx of people that were coming in there and they were crowding in the grocery stores or getting into the lineups or at the LCBO or whatever the case might be, uh, I, yeah, I'd be upset too. But the people I've talked to that do own cottages in, in all of those areas, and that we've heard from a lot of them over the last four or five days, have all said the same thing. We understand that, which is why we'll buy our supplies here. You know, we'll go to the grocery store here. We'll go to the liquor store there if that's what they're going to do. Pack it in the car and take it up there with us, and we're just going to stay on our property. And that's, that's self-isolating too. So there's strong arguments to be made on both sides of this. And uh, we'll see. I guess the the real real concern here is exactly what's going to happen this weekend and uh, and how, if anyone, is going to react to this and what kind of things the authorities might actually do uh, to try to, uh, to, to uh, well, uh, enforce uh, what some people consider to be an unenforceable bylaw. It's just one of the things that happen this time of year, and it's only one of many, of course, that we've, uh, we've talked about, about the impact that it's having. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Well, there's been a lot happening with our neighbors to the south uh, from charges against Michael Flynn being dropped. Uh, well, not officially. Uh, the Justice Department, a.k.a. Uh, you know Bill Barr, uh, said they're not going to pursue this anymore. But uh, Judge Sullivan, who presided over the case that uh, convicted Michael Flynn, has not weighed in on this, and they can't drop the charges unless he says so. So there's another story to be told there. But uh, also the administration is threatening to kill the trade deal with China because they say, well, China lied to them about the COVID-19 crisis, and that's what's causing all the deaths here. Uh, and speaking of COVID-19, uh, one White House staff member, apparently a steward who was serving dinner to the president and a personal valet, has tested positive. And, uh, the, of course, the media asked exactly, well, if he was positive, how did they get close to you? And is there a chance that the president himself uh, could test positive for COVID-19? Well, this is what he had to say. In fact, I had one yesterday and I had one today. Uh, and uh, it's uh, negative. Uh, Mike just had a test and it's negative. Interesting theory there. Uh, 
want to bring Elliot Tepper into the conversation, Emeritus Professor of Political Sciences at Carleton University. Elliot, good morning. Thank you so much for the time today. Good morning, Bill. It is not lost on me, by the way, just from that little, one little clip, that uh, you know the, the grand reopenings in many areas of the United States being encouraged by President Trump are starting to happen, and even more so this weekend. Uh, and the big concern everybody seems to have is testing, and he said it's no big deal. Yet, when it showed up in the White House, now he's being tested every day. So he's using the very same tool that he's not supplying to businesses to open. There's a bit of a, a, a double standard there, isn't there? You know, if you want to focus on that one item out of the big picture. Oh, there's lots more to go there. But, I mean, yeah. I just that's just it's just yeah. another Trumpism as far as I'm concerned. Yes, I was struck watching the briefings uh, all along that they were also not practicing social distancing of on course. the platform. They never have. And a few weeks ago, the entire national security team of America, the president, the vice president, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, the head of intelligence, they were all crowded together, shoulder to shoulder. But uh, quite clearly, the president uh, does, as any president would, has to be protected at a time like this. So, uh, this is not a party matter. But in this case, the president himself has downplayed testing uh, as, well, let's put it differently. He has said, actually, that testing is important and that everybody who wants to get a test can have it. And, of course, that's empirically been uh, shown not to be the case, and it's been pointed out to him repeatedly. And then he's also downplayed the need for uh, testing so much because, after all, I'm not sure where that logic went. <laughs> but, but uh, yes, we have a situation where the President of the United States is very much a senior citizen, therefore among the most vulnerable of the populations. Apparently he doesn't exercise much or his meals uh, <laughs> diet isn't all that great. And he's now been brought closer yet to the possibility that he himself could be infected. Still on the subject of, of COVID, uh, there's been so much going on here. The, you know, the, the rumors, of course, that he was going to fire Tony Fauci. I, I don't think that's going to happen. I'm sure as people said, you can't do that. That would be a, a PR disaster. But the, the concern about a second wave and the impact that the, the openings that he's encouraging right now uh, will have. And, and the reaction to this, Elliot, I, I found astounding. Uh, the ex-CDC chief it actually says there will be about 100,000 deaths in COVID-19 by the end of May. Uh, they're talking about a significant second wave where thousands more will die uh, because we're opening up and he's lifting many of these restrictions, or, or some of the governors are in situations like that. But his, his response to that, though, Elliot, was, well, people have to die. It's like they did in World War II. You know, they're, they're, they're patriots. If they, in other words, I... I <laughs> I, I love my country, too, but I'm not going to say, well, you know, my mother and father are going to die uh, from this disease uh, just so we can have a better economy. You know, I, I, I don't know that there are too many martyrs out there that are willing to do that, but that's the way he's trying to characterize this. We'll have to see how many martyrs there are out there waiting. We have an interesting situation where, um, the, just taking a slightly longer view, the president's response to the crisis initially was, of course, it's, it's a hoax, and the Democrats just are hyping this to make me look bad, and it's a Chinese uh, threat in any event. But he, he, then, he went from essentially dealing with a uh, handling a crisis, crisis management under, under threat of a virus, to transforming it into a culture war, where it became part of Republican um, attacks on Democrats, blue states versus red states, and that, mm -hmm. that was made very, very explicit uh, by Mitch McConnell, who said we're not in the business of bailing out blue states. 
and uh, and by the way, the blue states respond. Guess who's guess who's producing the money for the country, and yeah. guess which states are takers, uh, including Kentucky. But it's it's gone from a culture war, and you can see that in the polling, where Republicans supporters were much less likely to say this is a serious uh, a serious matter, and I'm personally worried about it. Democrats were far more likely, but now it's become, I think, a pivot uh, to the actual core element of his re-election campaign. Now we've gone to, yes, uh, you must reopen the economy, no matter what, because we need a good, healthy economy. And of course, who's going to argue with that, except you also want a healthy population. And I've got two quotes here that I think epitomize where we are in terms of U.S. politics today. Mm-hmm. The lieutenant governor of Texas, who's a Republican in a Republican yeah. state, and they announced early that they weren't going to stay closed, they were going to open up. And he said, I think I'm quoting it almost verbatim, there's more important things than living. Mm-hmm. More important things than living. And the other end of this, in Georgia, which also announced it's going to reopen, despite the indicators not uh, not showing that they were... <laughs> likely to escape this. The mayor of Atlanta has said, and she's a Democrat in a Republican Republican state with a Republican governor, said the only thing that has changed about COVID-19 as a result of this opening announcement is your chances of catching it. So there you have kind of the polar extremes and also the the partisan split over the issue of COVID-19. And again, not surprisingly, of course, they're making it a political issue and turning this into Democrats versus Republicans. And you're right, it's about the, where the money's going to come from and all of these sorts of things and, and still blaming uh, somebody. But that's that's Trump's modus operandi, though, isn't it, Elliot? It's the, it's the art of deflection. Nothing is ever his fault. He's never made a mistake. He's never done anything wrong. Uh, you know, even though he said it was a hoax initially, now he's blaming China uh, and threatening to, sl- to to cancel this trade deal that they've got with them because he said, uh, you know, they, they were less than honest about this whole thing. And they, is, he's still following, as, as of last night anyway, this theory that this was a creation, a concoction by the Chinese in some lab in Wuhan, as opposed right. to something that just happened. And that's his story, and he's sticking to it right now. It just, he's, just, he's just always got to push this off to somebody else. Well, in this case, a um, couple elements here. First is the domestic in, the, in terms of the U.S. Uh, he is creating a narrative for the domestic audience, uh, and saying, here's what actually happened. Don't look back at uh, what was said. In you. But here's my narrative. My narrative is that I did everything absolutely right and that uh, the uh, problems really are not mine. If the governors want to, uh, you know, it's not up to the feds to look after people. It's up to the governors, and they have to bear responsibility if there's deaths in their state. He doesn't put it that bluntly. So there's a domestic narrative going on that, uh, he's really handled it well. But let's turn to the China question, because I think there's yeah. a number of things. Uh, China's also trying to basically rewrite history, create a narrative here on their side, saying, look, we were we were exemplary. Uh, we handled this perfectly. Look, we are uh, reopening. We've handled this so well that it proves the superiority of our type of government. And we have basically a clash of narratives for the capturing the future, but part of the American narrative, which isn't, is that we don't want to lead. Part of China's narrative is we're willing and able to lead. Mm-hmm. So the, the possibility that China is going to emerge out of this um, in a greater 
geopolitical situation is, remains very high. And I, I'd like to pursue this a little further because we had uh, quite an article uh, here. Is this going to be a, the Chernobyl no moment for the Chinese? That is, yeah. Will the, I think you and I discussed this. Uh, remember, Chernobyl happened under uh, Soviet rule, and it showed that the government, the, Rush, the communist government, was incompetent and mendacious, and it mm-hmm. helped hasten the end of communism and the collapse of the Soviet state. So is this going to be the situation for China? Will they come out of this situation um, she being shown to be culpable or not? And we've had a very strong uh, response around the globe, and including a very strong response from Irwin Kotler, I think Canada's national human rights champion, former minister of justice, yes. uh, who, who just tore a strip off China saying, look, and this isn't him alone, but... Uh, he really pinpointed all of it. They lied about it. They are cleansing their, physically cleansing the, the evidence, and they are arresting and disappearing critics who point out that the Chinese government, the Communist Party's government, narrative is false. Those, those people are being silenced inside China as part of their, uh, their rewriting of the narrative and their claim for global leadership. Uh, but yeah, just, just as Trump did earlier this week when he fired one of the guys, one of the doctors from the CDC who, who was waving the flag about the dangers of this. So there's a, uh, it, it's troubling. And, and China is by no means, uh, you know, free of culpability in this. Of course they are. But, you know, to take this to the next level and say, well, they, they created this whole thing and it's right. all part of a Chinese you know, plot to try to spread this. And the, it, it, how many hundreds of thousands of Chinese died? Uh, I mean, it, 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 it just doesn't make any sense, but that's the narrative that he wants to hold on to. I, I, I think they're right, and I think Oren Kotler's right. I think he's a brilliant man and always been a great uh, champion of human rights. Uh, and he's talked about implementing the Majewski plot and a number of other things, and that may come to that, but uh, it's not going to be a decision for Canada alone or the U.S. alone, but that's not even what Trump seems to be one of focusing on right now. No, right now, switching back China and, and domestic U.S. politics, Quite clearly, a key element in the narrative that's being developed by Trump is that he acted impeccably and that because of Chinese perfidy, uh, Americans have died, and they have to pay a cost for that. The Chinese now have to pay a cost. And he's even talked about canceling America's debt. That, of course, would be, uh, just just as a side note, you know, all, all this money that's being raised by the U.S. government is being raised by selling bonds basically T-bills abroad, uh, abroad is where that goes. The Japanese, quietly, are the number one purchasers, but the second is the Chinese. So the Chinese hold an enormous amount of American debt. If you you welsh on your debt, you you can do that as a businessman and declare bankruptcy, but you can't do it as a country. But that's a a side issue. What is being said now is a, a consistent line that the Chinese are not only culpable, but as you pointed out, the consistent line now is emerging is it was a created virus from a lab. Mm-hmm. And very surprisingly, following U.S. politics, the intelligence community put out a, a statement a few weeks ago, and they never do this, saying, no, this was, there's no evidence at all that this is a man-made virus, that it really clearly shows genetic, you know, they've examined all the genomes. You no, know, this, this is from the wild. But that hasn't stopped the Secretary of State of America, yeah, Mike, Mike Pompeo, Pompeo yeah. you, know, you, you saw him go around, no, this, it's escaped from a lab. 
Well, there's a wiggle room in there if you follow the nuance. Well, it could still be not man-made, but carelessness from the lab. But all this means is that the Trump administration is blaming the state of China, the government of China, for being behind the global spread of a, of a virus that has now made, I guess there's well over a million people in the U.S. who have... Mm-hmm. Um, sorry, there's a beep there. And, and a million people in the U.S. and, and you know, the 60,000, 70,000, 80,000 uh, dying. So we have a situation there where... Uh, the American economy, the big news out of the U.S. today is the, the numbers, the job numbers, mm-hmm. you know, uh, much greater than the American Great Depression. And, of course, the Great Depression, you need to talk to an economist about this. They're arguing about it. The Great Depression, the jobs were actually lost, whereas in America, the jobs were you know, temporarily shut down. But will they all go back, and is the government pursuing the right tack, and so forth? But essentially what we've come down to is uh, the economy is no longer a strength for Donald Trump, and he's trying to pump it back up. In particular, the stock market, which economists will tell you is not is not the economy, but it's got to look good by election day. Well, it's a, it's a race right now. Uh, you know, he wants to, to try to prop the economy back up in time for the re, the election race itself after Labor Day. But at what human cost, I guess, is the question a lot of people are asking. Elliot, we're just about out of time. Uh, thanks, Azosha. I wish we had hours and hours to talk about this. It's always enlightening. Uh, have a great weekend. We'll talk again soon. Thank you, and everybody stay safe. You betcha. Elliot Tepper, of course, from uh, Carleton University. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.